0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to Punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my new buddy, I squashed a beef, and uh and much more. Nate Roos from the band Fun, from from the format, from solo stuff, from songwriting. It, this is a this is a really Really fun episode. And yet we do start off by squashing a beef. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker Extraordinaire, but not this week, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for this show each and every week. And I uh I really appreciate it. Well, not this episode, I should say. He's he definitely books uh the episode that's coming out later on this week. So yeah, he's still the guest booker extraordinaire. Uh, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just telling your friends about it. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. Thank you to everyone that does do that. I really appreciate it. Uh, you can also head over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk and check out the fun stuff we do over there. And thank you to everyone that does support the Patreon. Certainly. And speaking of thanks, this thing would not be possible. The kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing, which has been uh, really amazing. Definitely, because there are some costs. So thank you very much to Vans for doing that. Uh, If you want to check out some fun video content, go over to Flood Magazine and check out some of the punk as fuck videos that I did over there. Uh, me going around LA, hanging out with punk luminaries, doing fun stuff. You'll you'll like it. If you like this podcast, you'll like those. And uh, check out the new fucked up Year of the Horse. Last episode, I said that the final part was coming out uh, that day, I believe. Well, it's still not out. So go figure. I don't know when it's coming out, but uh, it's it's coming out, and the other three parts are already out. Check it out. It's an hour and a half long song in total. I think it's more than that, actually. I think it's even longer. Anyway, you've got some time. Check that out. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, Nate Roos is here. Nate Roos is, of course, the lead singer of the band Fun, the lead singer of the band Format, also a very accomplished songwriter and collaborator. You know, he's he's got got quite the rock resume under his belt. And I knew, I knew he was a punk rocker. I knew he had definitely, you know, come from punk rock. I knew he worked with Steve McDonald. Uh, I was always a fan of Fun's records. My doctors, you'll hear about this is a massive fan as well. And I talked to her about this band a lot. So, you know, they were a band that I, I, I rooted for. I always felt like, uh, I don't know. I felt, I felt like, uh, a connection with, but, uh, I had no idea that I had offended Nate. So, all these years ago, you'll hear this on the episode. I don't mean to rehash it right now. We get into, we get into it on the show, but yeah, it goes to show you, you know, like uh, out of the weird journey life takes you on sometimes, and we, you'll hear it. You'll hear all this in a second. This thing is all owed to happening to my uh, friends over there at the Blink One Fifty Five podcast, Sam Sutherland and Josiah. They, uh, they do a podcast and they had Nate on as a guest and this whole story came out on their podcast. So you go back and check out Nate's episode on Blink 155. You can hear where this thing kind of originates. Uh, this episode was recorded a while ago. I gotta be honest. I damaged a hard drive. I lost a lot of stuff on this hard drive. I didn't go into too many details on this show because it's, uh, kind of a sore spot for me. A lot of work on that thing gone. But anyway, I thought Nate's episode was lost. I was cleaning out a hard drive on an older computer for at home remote learning. And I found this episode on there. I say it's, it's older. It's definitely, you know, not that old, but you know, it should have been out a while ago, but now it is finally, out. I love this episode. This is one of my favorite episodes. Nate has got some incredible stories. Holy, holy. All right. That's it. I'm not going to ramble on it anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Oh, wait. No, no. Oh, I got some notes. I do have some notes. Where are my notes? Okay. Uh, number one, Save Ferris got a 9.5 on Pitchfork, not a 10. Uh, you, you'll hear it when it comes up. Uh, also, Jack Kevorkian is on the cover of the Unraw record, not Ed Gein. I don't know why I went there anyway. And the band I was trying to think of is Fall Silent. All this will make sense when you hear the episode, but... Those are the notes. All right. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Nate Roos on Turned Out a Punk. Nate, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me, Damien.
0: Well, as I was just telling you off air as we were just catching up, like this whole thing came together because of our, our, our mutual friends over there at Blink 155.
1: Yeah, your sister pod, is that what that is?
0: Oh my god, is that what it is? I've worked so hard I think hard I this.
1: think 155 is definitely your sister pod. Oh god.
0: Uh, okay, well, that's a cross I shall bear, but uh, that is, <laughs> but uh, no, th- this is amazing that it has kind of come together because, um, you know, it came together, I guess we should get into it off the bat, but like, it came together because... Um, I I dissed you, I guess, but I I didn't think I did and I didn't mean to, but I inadvertently dissed you.
1: I've thought about this in the shower, like at great length. Um, (laughs) It started, well, first of all, it started with a snitch tag um, and I was like, oh, God damn it. Like I really, you know what happened is I was kind of like trying to do my research for the, for the 155. They had asked me to be on the show. Um, and so I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to like, make sure that I listen to enough episodes. So I know that when I come on the air, I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to let Josiah just like clown me. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, he like, he's talked about touring with fucked up a couple times. All right. Awesome. Like, like David comes Alive, literally. And I'm not even kidding you the album, I think in the last 10 years, that's come out in the last 10 years that I've listened to the most by far. Um, and so I was like, all right, like I love fucked up. And then we're on the. Sh- I was on the show, and I was like, "Well, how do I like tie and fucked up?" And I was like, "Well, there was one time that we were on tour, and we were playing this festival in Kansas City, and I guess it was like a punk rock fest. And this is why we had like a number one song, so yes. I don't know what the fuck we were doing there in the first place." Um, but uh, someone said, "Hey, did you hear the guy, the, the lead singer, fucked up?" And I think that, th- like, I think David Comes Life had just come out too, and uh, I think I had just gotten into it, and it was like. Um, did you hear that he said something like oh I'd like to see what hear what Fun knows about Kansas City hardcore and um and I think we were all just like oh man like the cool like the cool band right now is already taking shots at us but I should say like who the fuck like when we weren't the num- when we didn't have a number one song we were like talking shit about whoever had the number one song so I I don't if anyone who is listening to this isn't in a band like bands just talk shit about other bands no matter what
0: well and now i will give the uh i guess where i came from to the story which is the fact that i have felt such a strong uh relationship to your band from afar for a very long time like it started before that festival i guess uh my wife was a huge fan of the tv show glee (laughs) <laughs> and your song was on Glee, and then and then it was all over the radio. And it was like uh, it was a. Gr- it, it's obviously you're a great songwriter, so it's a great song. And so we were right. like, so it was something that was just like a part of my universe. By the time we rolled in that festival, and we were all of a sudden like, oh my gosh, we played with fun. And it must have been something where you guys had been booked on that festival, and then you exploded, right? That must have been it.
1: Uh, yeah, something. I mean, our manager was always good about, um, I guess, trying to keep keep us it's somewhere along the lines, um, of not just going completely into a boy band, which is, you know, where we were going to trend regardless. So (laughs) I'm not doing that anymore, thankfully. Um, and, and furthermore is, I think all of us, you know, we, we were rooted in not commercial music. So, so it was kind of a trip that we ended up there in the first place. So I think there was always a part of us too, that, I, like as far as Kansas City hardcore all I have is the getup kids it's like which is like <laughs> which is like Lawrence and like not fucking hardcore.
0: No and I and I didn't have too much either like uh, my my, <laughs> my thing was it was more just like a playful joke because also I think you had a bass player who was someone that had played in a bunch of hardcore bands or was a hardcore kid because I think that person was tweeting at me prior to and we were just kind of like you know talking in conversation probably uh, and it, yeah tr- he
1: no he was the one who t- he he turned me on to to fucked up nate who i who i still like if i play shows will play with to this day um and he was a lawrence he was also a lawrence kid too and he played in uh i think he'd feed fill in for the get-up kids um too when the other dude was in spoon and stuff like that
0: okay yeah so we've been in communication kind of before that so like going on stage it was more like uh you know, but trust me, I'm, I've am i gotten myself into some hot water with some real disses over the years. But this one, I assure you, was a, was a very playful, playful one. And then as time has gone on, you know, um, through our, our mutual good friend, which I'm sure we'll talk about later in the show. But I hope so. You know, Stephen McDonald, Stephen McDonald, the uh, episode number four of this podcast. One of the well, I think we can both agree the coolest person of all time.
1: I mean, one of uh, literally one of my best friends um, to this day. I, I, I like, I, I can't talk about him without kind of choking up cause he's just, he's just so phenomenal, mm-hmm. um, and a legend. And I often forget when I'm in his presence, what, what a punk rock legend he is.
0: Yeah. Like it's kind of, you know, like if anyone deserves a, a movie of their life, it, it's him, right? Like I think forget almost famous, like the life he has lived in music, it, it's, it's, it's every kid's kind of dream and then the reality is something else but yeah we we don't have to get into that now but then and then also my doctor is is obsessed with your band and obsessed with your your music and to the point where every time i go and see her we talk about you for the entire appointment
1: but <laughs> that's, I mean, that's awesome. How many times you, I don't know my doctor's uh, m- musical preferences enough, so it must be like crazy. <laughs> Your well, doctor this, must really be into it. I've had
0: a very, uh, you know, a, I've seen this doctor for, you know, over 10 years at this point, but she is also the doctor that i I brought along to medical cannabis because I needed her to sign my medical forms oh my God. early on in my weed journey. So her and I have, have talked extensively about all subjects over the years, but in the last few years. Um, it's been nothing but fun for the entire interview and it'll be her flying to Red Rocks to see you guys play or no. Yeah. Stop. Yes.
1: Is this in Toronto too?
0: Yes. Yes.
1: So she's got, she's got to cross the border to go see us play at Red Rocks.
0: Oh, so many times she's gone to see you guys play. She's flown like her family vacation is, is going to see you guys.
1: I mean, Oh, I, I like, I wish I had any clout left over. Uh, I haven't done anything in five years. Um, whatever I can do, whatever I can do to get you like a good physical, like, (laughs) I'll I'll do it.
0: Well, I I think honestly, I honestly, I think part of the reason she has always, you know, put up with my, my, my shit when it comes to the weed stuff is because she thought in the back of her mind that one day what's happening right now might happen. And I'm worth keeping in the fold in case this
1: (laughs) ever did happen. Uh I'll do any if, if it squashes our beef, I'll do anything for her for you.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Our, well, believe me, I'm I'm telling you now, Nate, on my end, there was no beef. But now that we've cleared the air, I think we got to start the show the way they all start off, which is, Nate, how did you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre?
1: Yeah, um, it was Ska had just gotten big. I'm going to say this was 1996, mm-hmm. 1995, 1995. Or nineteen, yeah, between ninety four and ninety six, um, I think for me it started. I was like an alt alt, alt radio kid um, in middle school, like you know, or like sixth grade. I had a Weezer t shirt or something like that, um, and so that one must have been like ninety four. Uh, and then my mom worked with a woman who was like super into Scott and had like the Doc Martins and um, and uh, it had like dyed her hair and stuff like that. And she was, had started going to ska shows. And I think that was like right around the time that ska was like hitting the alternative airwaves. And so we would, she would take me and my friends to ska shows, I think in like my freshman year in high school. And then we started seeing like kind of what the scene was at that point. And from there, you know, it was like ska shows, and in just straight up into like punk i think it was like you know it went from like mainstream ska to like skank and pickle to like um maybe to like 15 you know was kind of like the and then and then for me i think it would it be i was much more into like the pop punk side of it Mm -hmm. no offense to jeff ott but but like um i was definitely into like the popier like no effects was the fat record stuff was more my like punk thing. But what's craziest about, I think all of this is that we went from being just like in a span of two years, we were kids that were going to like the radio ska shows to literally running the entire punk scene and like, including like booking every major act.
0: So be, you mentioned prior to this being into alternative music, where were you kind of getting into music at this point? Was it through MTV or is it through uh, just like through the radio? the radio?
1: It was through the radio. It's through like an alt radio station in Phoenix. Um, so, you know, I, I was like, I was a super, super Weezer kid. Like that was where it really all started for me. And
0: I guess going back to this woman, was she into like like alternative music prior to Ska hitting? Or was that when Ska hit,
1: she like was like, I'm a convert? No, she, no, she was, she was a punker. She was straight. Okay. She was. <laughs> She, she was legit, like, and it was cool that she was like legit and then taking like us to, to, and then, you know, we'd started collecting compilations and we'd be like, do you, have you heard about this band? Have you heard about this band? And she, she was just like, yeah, you guys are like lame.
0: (laughs) So what was the first uh, show you went to with her?
1: Um, God, I want to say it was save Ferris and I (laughs) can it was save Ferris and I got a, uh, the lead singer of save Ferris, like out like a a uh, shirt that said like rude boy. And I like had like a shirt that said rude boy. You caught the shirt. Yeah, I caught the shirt. <laughs> that's amazing. You're, was that your first concert ever? That was not my first concert ever. That was my, I'd, I'd seen, there were like some that I went to with my dad. And then I went and saw Weezer um at, at like a small show right after Pinkerton was released. Okay. Um, And then it was, so was my third show.
0: Wow. So that's like a, that's like a huge thing catching the shirt. Like normal people fought for those things.
1: Yeah, I don't I yeah, and it was at a really lame club. Like I said, like we took over the scene um yeah. a couple of years like in the span of maybe even like a span of like a year and a half, we'd taken over like we couldn't drive and next thing you know we could drive and we, we took over the whole entire scene. Um but um and it's dead since, so I think we run it ran it into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but it was yeah, it was a fucking it was a trip. It was the most exciting thing. And it defined, it absolutely defined me and still defines me to this day, uh, like, if I really want to think about it.
0: It's funny with Save Ferris, too, because that is the first perfect score on Pitchfork. Wait, what? Save Ferris in the original incarnation of Pitchfork got a 10 out of 10. That's that's amazing. <laughs> I know. Um, was, it the,
1: was it the one with Come On Eileen?
0: I guess it would have been. I don't know. Like, they've taken down the review but it used to be on the Wikipedia and it used to be, I'm sure it's saved somewhere on the internet way back machine, but there's sort of like a, a very, you know, typically verbose review of the safe Ferris record where they gave it. uh, I think it was a 10 out of 10. I might be a 9.0, but it it might've been a 10.
1: How fucking lame is it to take it down? It's like, leave it up.
0: No, I know. I think that's like, that's the thing that gets me like, you know, own it, you know, like you can think safe Ferris is perfect and also think Radiohead's perfect. It doesn't have to be one or the other.
1: It absolutely doesn't have to be one or the other. they, for the record, they did actually put on a good show. the The shows were so good, like the shows were so good. So it started like that, and then um, I was in this band called The Format before Fun, mm-hmm. um, and and um, we had done yeah, pretty like I, we were signed to a major label, all this type of stuff. But before we were that, we were in pop punk bands, and my my bandmate Sam, um, who uh, I was in the, it was like him and I were the Format. He was one or two years older than us, so he could drive. So. Basically, our whole entire lives we were going to um, this place called Tempe Bowl or this other club in, in Phoenix called Denial. And we couldn't drive yet. And We would just get in his car and we'd go to Jack in the Box and, and get like 700 tacos and like would just go to shows. Uh,
0: it's funny, too, how like, um, you know, that time in that scene, like, you know, it's completely once you had a friend who had a driver's license, it's like you were you could you were set. You can go anywhere. Oh, it was surreal. It was surreal. I
1: and mean, this was like an hour away from we grew up in like the like weird suburbs uh of Phoenix, way far away from like where all the shows were. So so our one friend is crazy that his parents, now that I have kids, I'm like, no, you're sixteen, there's no fucking chance you're driving like an hour <laughs> I know, to go I see know. like some band I've never even heard. Like like yeah, there no, not no chance.
0: <laughs> I know it's terrifying when you're a parent to think of like the stuff like you know, like just like letting your your minor kid go across the border, in my case, and sleep at some stranger's house on their floor. Like I would never let my kids do that
1: stuff. No, that's fucking why I know we used to do that, too. We used to drive to L.A. to go see shows uh, or Pomona uh, at this club called The Chain Reaction. Um, And yeah, we used to drive to The Chain Reaction. We were like 16 years old. My, I don't know what my parents were doing, like letting us do that shit.
0: It's it's terrifying. Uh, you mentioned earlier being into no effects. was So I guess at that point, like the Epifat sound, you know, was was huge on the West Coast. Right. And I guess it spread into Arizona, too.
1: Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah. Talking about the East Coast versus West Coast thing, because I just assumed that it's what everybody was doing. But um, our bass player, like in the format, he was he was crazy into like Madball and all that, yeah. that type of shit, like on the East Coast or um, even my drummer like now like talking about all the earth crisis shows or all that type of shit that they used to like watch on the East coast. And I'm like, wait, you guys just weren't, you guys just weren't like skanking it up. <laughs> like listening to like, <laughs> like the no Effect sky album and like going to less than Jake shows. Like what the fuck is that? But yeah, like when I look at it in retrospect, I mean, I'm, I think I'm, I'm extremely thankful because there was this melodic sense that I think I still take with me when I'm, if I'm trying to write a song for like, a top 40 artist, I think that, that, that kind of that fat record stuff and stuff like that, there's, there's just, just this great melodic sense that I still like try and tune into when I'm, when I'm writing music.
0: Out of all the fat bands, who's your like go-to?
1: Uh, um, I guess I'm going to say either no effects or Lagwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just because I've been trying to like rack my brain about all the different bands on fat that I used to love. And all I can ever think is like, yeah, you listen to like a lot of no effects and a lot of lag, but I know that there was like way more. I think that like the mad caddies, which were like a ska band. Um, I don't know. I, I think it like, yeah, mainly just like no effects. There were two Oh God. Propagandi is my favorite fucking pop punk band of all time. Or yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah. They're there. I think that's the one that, uh you know, people that come on the show kind of always say like, that's the one they keep going back to is Propagandi being kind of the band.
1: Yeah, I, I I honestly think that propaganda um, as far as like as a human being, as far as like the, like the beliefs that I have, it was it was strange because I grew up in Phoenix and, and um, like you're not you're, it's nothing. My parents were never like racist or homophobic, but you just can't as a teenage kid with like hormones, you can't help but like, you know, just have like the worst thoughts in your head. And um, and propaganda came on and suddenly it was just like we went from like like harassing the the only gay kid in school to like being like you fucking bigot like just like like just going crazy just like defending everything and i like i, I can I, I think that that's who i was going to be no matter what because of the way that my parents raised me but i think propaganda just played such a huge part in like just a set of of beliefs that i think i i still think to this day are better than any
0: a hundred percent. Like, it's funny, like it, uh, that band, you know, once again, to think about like a kid, m- you know, one of my kids age or like a little bit older, obviously than my kids, but like getting into that band and all of a sudden like trying to struggle through reading like uh, a, a Howard's Zinn book, you know, <laughs> or, or like sitting there trying to like, you know, do research on, on all these themes that are brought up in the essay and less rock, more talk or, or more rock, yeah. More talk, whatever.
1: Yeah. It's, it's such a, fun, I mean, I, I still, like I said, um, uh, uh, David Comes to Life is definitely the album that I've listened to out of the last 10 years, the most out of any album. And Let's Talk More Rock is just the album that I've listened to the most in general.
0: That blows my mind when you said that. I, I didn't mean to no sell it earlier <laughs> when you said it the first time, but that, that is, uh, truly humbling. Thank you very much for saying that. That's, uh, yeah, very, very, you know, it's like, and once again, it's just so, I don't know, like I loved doing this podcast because it makes me realize that there is, you know, for an, as a non-spiritual person, like realizing there is sort of like this weird interconnectedness that exists there where here we are talking all these years. And as I said, like I felt like such a strong relationship to your band <laughs> for a long time.
1: Well, then fine. I felt the same way. Um, obviously I had no fucking choice. I listened to it when I was, after we'd finished that first fun album, there were some good, It's I'm so bad with song names. Um, but there was one song on the album where I was like, yeah, I'm just going to fucking sample this track and just play this loop in this chorus over and over and over again. And i am I'm still improv- now that now that we're our beef has been squashed, <laughs> um, I'm absolutely just going to loop this and probably write like one of the best songs ever on Under My Nose Uh there's this, just this guitar that like, just like loops kind of in the chorus. And I, all I've ever wanted to do is just like sample that loop it. And like, and you just have like the best, it's just just something that's so cathartic about it for me.
0: Well, that is, that is too sweet, too sweet. Um, well back to back, you know, before my ego gets so big that, uh, we can't get, get it back to the ground. Um, (laughs) there's like one, you know, another thing I'm kind of obsessed with is, is Arizona, specifically Phoenix, Arizona, in uh, as like this place where where like you have this really kind of unique take on punk rock, like going back to bands like The Feeders or the Sun City Girls or Mighty Sphincter and all these bands, like even going back before that Don Bowles from the Germs is from there and all this crazy garage rock. Like how much of that history of punk rock were you able to kind of pick up on as a young person?
1: None, 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 literally mm-hmm. none. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't mean like, I I just want to be Frank, like, no, no,
0: I totally understand that. It's like, it's really obscure stuff.
1: No. And it's, and, but it's awesome. You know, we hear, we would hear about stuff like that, like vaguely from Steve McDonald, you know, cause he'd, he produced, uh, the second format album. So Sam and I had heard about that stuff, but really only from, um, really only from Steve. And then there was another punk band that we became friends with, um, called the fuck you ups. Um, so you guys should be looking for for a little cease and desist right there, but um, but the fuck you ups like they they kind of they always had more of, of an ear to the streets as far as that type of stuff was concerned. Our thing was is that you know our pop punk phase lasted um like two years and then and Jimmy World was the biggest thing um, in Arizona at the time, like kind of brewing up underneath it so it's like i feel like those guys like jim and those guys would would be so much more apt to to be able to because they were you know four four or five years older than us Mm -hmm. so i think they would be so much more apt to be able to talk about that type of stuff whereas we were just kind of like i think we just we we missed a lot of that and i obviously didn't have the appreciation for it that that we probably needed
0: Uh, around that time that you guys were i guess
1: what was your first band called by the way before the format (laughs) um uh they're never gonna score
0: (laughs) and is that like a like an epithet vibe band or like a 15 kind of vibe
1: no it was not a 15 type of vibe no i wish i i mean god obviously in retrospect i wish but i was like i was like punk rock jock too so it was it was like a very no, it was, fuck, we had a song called Tonight's Tonight, and it was like, you know, tonight's tonight, <laughs> I've got everything just right, um, that was kind of the way it was, uh, the first song I ever wrote was a song called Rent-A-Guy, and it was because I felt like my girlfriend in high school had just, like, used me to, like, um, to go to the the prom, Yeah, and as soon as she had a prom, and then as soon as the prom was over, she, like, dumped me. So it was like rent a guy.
0: <laughs> so were you like a fan of like Cheshire Cat, Blink One Eighty Two kind of era stuff?
1: Yeah, there was definitely a lot of the the Cheshire Cat, Blink 182 Our first band was, um, or like never going to score. The first incarnation was of it was definitely like a Blink One Eighty Two rip off band. Um, and then there was a band called like the the Ataris. Um, there was like Nerve Herder. Mm-hmm. Shit like that, just like very pop type of stuff. Um which I like is fun, is is it's cool. I've been listening to it a lot more lately because um because I've started a pop punk band, but um and it's it's great. It, to me it holds up. Yeah,
0: I love Nerf Herder. I think Nerf Herder, my my dad is like the biggest Nerf Herder fan. So like still to this day, loves Nerf Herder of all the bands.
1: It's, it's fucking good, it's catchy as shit, and it's kinda funny.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, they they definitely – and they kind of had a moment, right? Like there was a – they did they sign on a
1: major label or they definitely had like a minor hit at some point? Wasn't everybody signing to like MCA at one point? I, that's what <laughs> I kind of felt like everybody was doing. Um, they had a song called Van Halen. Yes. Um, that was on – as far as where I was in Phoenix, it was a local hit.
0: Yeah. No, I definitely – I think it was even on like an uncut records compilation or a Mojo magazine CD sampler or something I picked up. Around that time, because I totally remember that song being you know, and then eventually, yeah, it was kind of like a minor hit it was
1: on like alternative
0: radio and stuff like that up here even
1: yep and then and then other stuff so, like we would do like Mr. T experience like there was some lookout stuff that we'd get into so what
0: were some of the bigger local bands happening like obviously Jimmy world, but like were there any kind of like bigger pop punk bands around that sort of b- couple years prior type thing
1: no, um no, I don't think there were really any big pop punk bands we we kind of started like i'd said so what happened was um we'd started going to every single show Mm -hmm. and um and we started just making friends with other people that were in bands we couldn't even play like our instruments but we were just like no we're we're in a band too we're in a band too and for whatever reason one of our friends was such a smooth talker with this this like shady shady guy who ran the whole entire punk scene his name was fuck, I can't even remember his name, but he he owned this theater called the Nile Theater. His parents had like bought it for him. and um, And he suddenly like picked out our friend who had started booking some like some other shows at 16 years old. Our friend, he was like, I want you to take over and be my main booker. At 16 years old, like one of our best friends since we were like 13 became the main booker for all the punk shows in Arizona. He dropped out of high school and just like, <laughs> started working as the main booker. And then Sam, my bandmate had taken over like all the artwork. And then we were like the lackeys who had to go to like every record store and put, put in all the flyers. So anyway, so th- what that did for us is we were just like, okay, cool. Then we deserve to be on like the less than Jake show. We deserve to be on like the Lagwagon show, you know, the, the like thousands, the thousand capacity, it, that were are in like the big room upstairs. Like we got to be the local band opening up on the, on those shows.
0: So yeah, like what what kind of bands were coming in? Was it like all like I guess he had a budget to book some of these big bands? They were had probably picked pretty big guarantees, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, they had to have been I I think they were huge guarantees. Cause these were thousand seaters. And then they and then our friend had gotten so big that he was doing next thing you know, he's doing three thousand seaters. He's booking like like you know, the big he's booking like um a perfect circle and and like all kinds of shit like that was on the radio. Um so he and then he and then, but then he started making fake IDs <laughs> and got busted by the cops, and that was the end of that. Oh
0: man, what an ascent! And <laughs> then such a tragic end.
1: I mean, that's like the story of his life, so it's it's fun. Um, like, uh, going back, were
0: there like local bands that were jealous of the fact that you guys were all on every single show?
1: Um, may, maybe, but I think that we had also kind of started to get good, mm-hmm. um, and people were like people had started to just kind of get into us. Um I don't I don't know wh- why. I think that also the scene was so tight and we all belonged to this message board um it was called the Nile message board for the theater that that everybody had worked at and that was kind of where everybody from the scene went to hang out online. Okay. And so um and I like we weren't ones to like start beef. So everybody was cool with that. Even like, so Tucson had like the hardcore scene. So that was like the locusts and shit like that. Like (laughs) everybody was just trying to be like the locusts up in Tucson. Okay. Yeah. Um, And, and like, if we are down here, like maybe starting like some like, then we were listening to like the get up kids and like shit like that. So then we started more of like an emo type of vibe mm-hmm. and we were still like super tight with all like the fucking locust kids who would like drive down from Tucson and like spit on people, like spit on any artist that like came and played. <laughs> so like, so for whatever reason, like we were exempt from spit. Like everybody thought we were cool and we were like, and, and I think we were just like cool with everybody. We were never like dicks about anything.
0: So what about like you know? when you mentioned the hardcore scene. What about like King of the Monster Records and like Unra and Shadows? I'm trying to think of some of the bands that would have been around them. Like, like
1: Unra. Well, yeah, Unra was Unra was pretty big. Was Unra uh, an Arizona band too?
0: I think so. Uh, the was, labels yeah. from Arizona, right?
1: Yeah, Unra Unra was a, an Arizona band. So like, so our hardcore fan friends like loved Unra. Yeah. Um, and that was cool. Were they? I think they were like straight edge too, weren't they?
0: I don't know. I like I they're one of those bands that's just like a mysterious record I picked up as like a young person because it had a weird sketchy looking cover with a drawing of Ed Gein on it like in a collage <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's perfect for, you know, 17-year-old me." Was um, the
1: was was Unruh any good?
0: Unra's fantastic. Like I still go back and listen to. It, it kind of sounds like, you know, it's very metallic sounding. There's like a whole scene of bands I kind of around like, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s from Arizona, which must be the stuff you're kind of talking about that was Shadows. I'm trying to remember all the names now. They just they escape me other than Unruh because it it's like, such a name that stands
1: out. I don't fucking know. Like Shadows Fall what the fuck? I don't I don't. Fucking Shadows
0: know. Fall. Were they from there, too?
1: I don't know. Okay. Scary Kids Scaring Kids was another band that, that was kind of from there. Um shit. I really can't remember because then we had started to kind of. That was when we sort of phased out of that scene. And, and Jimmy World had kind of taken over. And that was kind of like that was where you moved afterwards.
0: So I guess, like, going back to that point then, when Jimmy World takes over, by that point, are you already doing the
1: format? Uh, Yeah. Well, no. No, it was never going to score into the most emo name ever this past year.
0: That's a great name. That would be huge now.
1: Yeah, it might. It might. But we were like, listen, at that point, like, you know, and also John K. S- Sampson left Propagandia and started the weaker then. So yes. that was such a huge, that was also a huge shift for me, too. And whereas like, I think Propagandhi had maybe started making more like stuff that was a little more metal than less talk, more rock. Mm -hmm. Um, And John K. Samson was doing like more of like the emo type of thing. So, so that was big. He's still one of my, you know, biggest idols. Um, So, so this past year, I think even I, that was like a reference to like a weaker than's lyric. Um, And so we were kind of doing that. And that's when we were kind of like ripping off Jimmy world. And then we were like, okay, cool, how that band had broken up. Um, and we just decided to like start the format, which was, I think maybe we'd started listening to like the Beatles and shit like that at that point.
0: It's funny because just before we uh, started talking, I was organizing my 90s zine collection as one does on a Saturday night. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, And I was looking through one issue of this fanzine called Fist City from London, Ontario, or maybe it's even Montreal, sorry. And in that, there's a letter from John K. Sampson taking the zine to task for dissing Ani DeFranco in the previous issue.
1: Oh my fucking I'm mean, what a dude, man. I mean, I don't understand what it is with you you people, you Canadians. <laughs> um, but I just lo- I just love I just love the fucking I, I any, and I don't I don't know. I'm gonna say something that's probably gonna sound like I'm generalizing, but it's just what a what a wonderful, what a wonderful fucking thing. He what a cool guy
0: yeah like the, it, it's something about Winnipeg too, because you know geographically speaking it it's you know not surrounded by other major urban centers, and it's like the the uh it doesn't have a huge population it's freezing cold and maybe because it's freezing cold, but like you know you, you mentioned obviously John K. Sampson. we talked about propaganda, but then there's also like all this huge metal stuff that comes out of there there's an incredible film, like some of the best Canadian films are from Winnipeg. And then pro wrestling, like all like Chris Jericho, Kenny Omega, like most of the famous Canadian wrestlers also weirdly all come out of Winnipeg too.
1: No shit. I I, I mean, I think I've only been to Winnipeg three times and it it was kind of almost everything that I ever heard from a weaker than song. (laughs) Yeah. Um. I I don't Yeah. And it's, I, I I have such a strange, I have such a fondness for Canada. I can't wait to just like, I would love, I'm not, I don't tour anymore, but I would love to just like take my family and just tour like Canada. And, <laughs> and it's like, it's, it feels like something, something is connected to like some of my favorite songs just like throughout ev- everywhere throughout the, the the country.
0: Yeah. It's, it is a really nice, it's not a great thing to tour as a band because the drives are not
1: that. Oh nice. yeah. It's fucking brutal. <laughs>
0: brutal. But you know, with the family, it would be a great thing to do. Like I wish I could just, I wish I was like in uh, the Partridge family or something. That's the way to do it. Totally.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so what was the
0: transition then uh, into the format? Like, how did that go? <sighs> um, well,
1: what happened was what did we I guess we started? What happened w- was we the this past year was just about to get signed to um, Fuel by Ramen, which at the time was still an independent label. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, yeah, at, at the time, I think it was Alkaline, Alkaline Trio had just maybe released like a song or two on Fueled by Ramen. But for us, like that was, that was cool as hell. But we were about to sign to Fueled by Ramen and then we broke up. And um, And Sam and I just decided like, hey, let's just do something more like poppy. Let's like, just like stop making music that has any like pulse <laughs> to an extent, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, and so that's what that we like, just got way more melodic at, at that point, And it started the format and, um, and had delusions of grandeur because we had, we wrote a song. It became like, it was such a catchy song that someone heard it and like put it on the radio. And then it was the number one song on the radio in Arizona. And this was just a demo. And so every major label came calling and, um, And we were like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. Let's do like a major label and let's be huge. And we recorded the first album and it was a miserable experience. And, um, and we went straight back to like, we called a booking agent who booked like all like those emo bands, like taking back Sunday and all kinds of stuff like that. We had just called all these people. And even though we thought that we didn't belong in that scene, we were just like, we're going to play shows to like, you know, the fans of fallout boy or the fans of Jimmy world or stuff like that. And, um, And for whatever reason, I think that kind of like we were we were considered always within that scene. But we were always like then our next album that we did with Steve McDonald was like all like we were trying to be the Beatles or Harry Nilsson and and like write like songs and weird time signatures and shit like that. And somehow it like it only endured us to, you know, those that's that scene of music. And that was kind of where we like cut our teeth and had like kind of got a fan base from.
0: I guess going back, you know, right to that first demo then, is that the EP? That is the EP. And so like that just, was that already released on Western Trend when it went to radio or is it just something that got sent to radio even before the EP was put out?
1: It got sent to radio even before the EP was out and then Jim had had all this success with Jimmy World and he'd started his own record label. And so he was like, hey guys, why don't I just like, why don't you let me? release like your first EP and we were like, even though we had already signed to a major label, we were like, that's that's great. And like this guy's kind of one of our idols. Um, this sounds like sounds like a perfect opportunity.
0: So was it like kind of like everything was exploding for you guys um around almost like perfectly time with them exploding uh sort of separately or is it almost like attention came after they exploded?
1: Um, they, they had, we got the attention after they exploded. There was no, we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for Jimmy world. Like as far as just get, they put in the, you know, for Arizona in the early to mid nineties, you had, um, the gin blossoms Mm -hmm. and you had, um, dead hot workshop and, um, and this band called the replacements or the, the refreshments, sorry, the refreshments. Um, so they, not the replacements. No, I'm, uh, I wish, I wish I grew up in Minnesota. <laughs> I was like, There's
0: another replacements. Go on.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so we, that they, those were kind of like the bands that were big at the time. And then, and then Arizona had nothing like mm-hmm. Arizona was going to be the second Seattle, um, with their like jangly desert pop, I think is what they fucking called it. Whatever the fuck that is. Yeah. Meat puppets um,
0: got signed to a major even.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like meat puppets. Um, and that all died out and then so when Jimmy World came back suddenly people started paying attention to Arizona again and that that allowed us kind of that like put people that put us on the map for sure.
0: And so you mentioned all the major labels coming what made you decide to go with Electra or is it just like that was the best offer kind of thing.
1: We were like this one's kind of cool because the cure is on Electra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're like the cures on Electra Metallica's on Electra. It seems like a, out of the, all of them, it doesn't seem like the, the you wouldn't, you wouldn't think like Warner brothers or, you know, it doesn't have like that type of name to it. I, yeah. everybody I think had been trying to sign us and we might've signed like one of the last good deals in all of music. Um, And we just fucking <laughs> we like, we've really let them down. We, we spent a shit ton of money. <laughs> we had no idea really how to write a song. Um. And then as soon as they were like, now you guys like go be like r- radio band and stuff like that. We were like, no, fuck you. We're going to go like do tours with like piebald and shit.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure like now they're pretty happy. Like they keep repressing that record. Right. So I guess. Like...
1: I don't know if they do No, Here's the crazy fucking thing is then. So we were so miserable after the first record that we were like, let's just fucking get dropped and we'll release it ourselves. And we've had like a, enough of a culty following. And, um, and so we're turning in these like Harry Nilsson style songs that Steve had had produced um and you know and we only got into steve we didn't get into steve because of red cross we got into steve because he was married to anna um is married to anna from from that dog and you know and her dad had produced like the van dyke parks albums and (laughs) steve was like super close with like with roger from jellyfish and so we were like oh roger from jellyfish can do all of our like crazy horn arrangements and shit like that so that was where like steve would like 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 regale us with stories about like the old days and we were just like what wow man punk's crazy old man <laughs>
0: so did he play bass for you guys is that how he came in first or is it do you just wind up playing bass on some
1: stuff he just played ba- he played bass on the album in the studio because he was the producer of the mm-hmm. album but yeah the second format album was produced by steve mcdonald um once again like i always our th- i think our thing always was like don't go with the like most flashiest name you could possibly get. But we met Steve and we found out that like, that he was in, you know, Red Cross and that, that to us seemed cool. He seemed just like super sincere. And he had, he has such a wealth of musical knowledge. Um, that it, it just like, it just fit in line with who kind of we, we are as people. We're much more um I don't know, like, we're just kind of nerdy, nerdy dudes who, who would, you know, want to talk about like Randy Newman and shit.
0: (laughs) Well, when did you start getting into all that stuff and like more of the perfect pop kind of sound?
1: That happened right after all the punk rock stuff. Like that was kind of, it was right after, or I should say like the emo stuff. That was when, uh, I think I just started learning how to write songs. Cause what, the way that I used to do it was people would give me a chord progression Um, you know, or the band would write like a riff and shit like that. And then I would try and write vocals on top of it, Mm -hmm. but I'd started realizing that I could hear the whole entire song in my head. And so, um, so I'd started just singing it to, to, to people and then being like that, making them like kind of figure out the chords that were behind it. Or like, even I knew like what the chords were supposed to be. I couldn't play guitar, but I could like be like, no, it's supposed to sound more like this, supposed to sound more like this, or I could just like sing them the notes that they were supposed to be playing. Um, and so when that started happening, that's when I kind of wanted to like I wanted everything. I was like, shit, I know how to write a song. Like, I want to fucking I want to write a song like the the Beatles. <laughs> yeah.
0: Did you tour much with the format on that first record, the major label record?
1: We did. We toured. That's all we did. We t- I think we toured for like three straight years. Um, uh, I think our first tour was with Piebald. Our second tour might have been with like the rx bandits which which was like a ska type of band and there's kind of just like a lot of stuff like that like so a lot of the stuff that we'd grown up and we our whole intention was to like ditch that <laughs> and like and like become like superstars um and then we we realized that that once once we got there it was so fucking whack that we were like, I want to go back to where we used to be. And so we used to, but we just started doing all those shows and it was, it was just funny. It's kind of like this, I guess it was the same thing that happened with fun is it all like took off. And I was just like, this fucking suck. Like these people are terrible. Like at the top, like these are just bad. This is just not, not my scene. So, um, so yeah.
0: It was funny. Cause like Moby was on and, uh, and on the, on the show and he was like, I'm like at the end, I'm like, yeah, do you ever get like Ian McKay on your shoulder? Like, you know, like guilt kind of thing about different things over the years. And he's like, I really wish I had stopped making music in nineteen eighty-five. I didn't make a single friend in music after I left punk. And <laughs> I kind of feel the same way when I look at my life. Like I made a few, it's, but like really it was like in punk.
1: Yeah, it's a we I you know, it's it's a funny thing, but like, yeah, fake friends for sure, as far as that shit was concerned. Mm-hmm. Um after that, it was that's what we went back to. Now we decided I, I was kind of just like, I don't want to do, I'll just write songs for other people. Like I don't want to really tour anymore and I don't want to do interviews anymore or anything like that. And, um, and then I listened to the first format album and I was like, this is really fucking bad, but I would really like to play these, these songs again live. Um, and I'd always loved the second format album, the, the album that Steve had done. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Sam and I had talked, and we were like, "Shit, let's do some reunion shows." And so we planned some re- reunion shows. Um, and three weeks before, like the first show, I was I'd like called and I was like, "I think this COVID thing is going to pop off, so I think we need to cancel this shit." <laughs> um, and so we didn't get to do it. And then we're sitting in the in like in quarantine and I don't want really want to do any more like format songs. I don't know. There's just a part of me that is done writing a certain type of song. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we decided, decided to start this, like this, um, pop punk band. And that's been like, that's been the highlight for, for me personally of, of this whole entire quarantine.
0: What was the story with the vanity label? Like it's, it's, it's you guys.
1: It's just us. Yeah. That was just our label. Cause what happened is we got dropped. um, after the first album and, and, uh, and so we made our, we made our second album and we had a management company, a Canadian management company, mind you, uh, network that, um, had enough clout at the time that we could like release the album our own and get like good distribution.
0: And you guys did not put out that Mike Simonetti double cassette tape that some, for some reason shows up on the discography. Did you No. who's Mike Simonetti? <laughs> he did trouble man, unlimited records. He also does Italians do it better. Records. He's like a kind of like blog house DJ, but also a complete hardcore kid um, from back in the day. He does a lot of tallow disco stuff too.
1: No, that's, I mean, no, that sounds sick though.
0: I know it's for some reason it shows up on the discography for the label as the only other. Release. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We signed that shit. Yeah, we did.
0: I was like, what a weird thing to do. Like some random double cassette other
1: than your <laughs> own band. That would be so. Yeah, we did it. That was us.
0: Uh, what 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 made you decide to for Steve to produce? Was there a particular record? Because like his stuff that he's produced is so all over the map. Like he's done stuff with obviously Beck to to Turbo to to like he did a Dream Syndicate live record even.
1: He did. What yeah. he also did. Um. God. Well, there there was one kind of punk band that was coming out out at the time. They were from Tennessee. They had a uh, a female singer. Oh,
0: be your own pet. Be your own pet. Yes, absolutely. That's the first time I met him was when he was with Be Your Own Pet at South by Southwest.
1: Yeah, so, like, I mean, Steve has been involved in, like, everything. We were such an unlikely pair because, like I I said, like, we ran, like, kind of like the punk scene in Arizona, but it was, you know, when you talk about, like, stuff that's a little more true to it, like, we can't hang. So we were just like, I don't know what the fuck. Red Cross is and obviously we loved it when we heard like Born Innocent mm-hmm. um, and then even the other and then you know the the albums that came later in the, in the late 80s and shit like that and they just they were so it, it just had a level of pop that we were kind of going for um, even if it, we didn't sound anything like it we just appreciated the fact that there was like an appreciation for like George Harrison you know and like the Raspberries and you know but it was mixed it had a, it had like an energy from you know, punk rock, I guess, to it that we, I don't think we were ever going to maybe throw in the songs, but we knew that there was somebody who had, um, I guess I like just, just more of that attitude. He wasn't precious.
0: Yeah. And it's almost like, you're, like, it's like true pop, almost the, uh, the red cross records. Like they're kind of like trying to go for that, uh, the, the same thing that like, you know, Imperial teens going for and the same thing that fun's going for and the same thing. The nerves are going for like the idea of like a perfect pop song.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally. There was, there was like almost a lack of pretension that becomes pretension.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot of work to be cool. You know, Steve doesn't show it, but I'm sure there's a lot of effort to be that cool.
1: I think about it often when I talk to him, I, I honestly think about it. He's, he's such a square. Um, that like it yeah he's so he's so authentic it's it's crazy it's so cool well because that's the thing right like we're
0: most of us we you know we have to wait till our 20s to to become like you know cool like he's 11 playing with like the most dangerous band in la you know it's it's it you know maybe the most dangerous band in america at that point with black flag and it's like man like, like how jaded would you have to be you'd have to be jaded and then come full circle
1: again maybe two or three times by the time you're steve's age He's lived, he's lived like 40 lives and they've all, but they've all been consistent with each other. He's, you know, he's one of those people that's lived 40 lives as the same person, Mm -hmm. which is amazing because, you know, most of us, um, like, you know, I'm talking about all these phases and stuff like that. Like I was a different person through every single phase. Yeah, Um, definitely. Steve, Steve was literally the same person through like through 40 completely different phases. He was always a, well, <laughs> um, you know, that was always him. And it's, it's still always him to this day. It's so cool. And yeah, you know, we, I think one of the reasons why we love Steve so much and why we chose him is he is just naturally cool. So we were like 20, 23 or 24, I think when we had gone and made that second format album. And, um, and he was like 35 or so. He's like, he was like my age now. And we were just like, this is the fucking coolest guy that we've ever met in our entire lives. Yeah. Well, like
0: he's, he's, he actually is the coolest. Like you talk to like, especially like, you know, that generation of cool people, he's all of their coolest person. Like when you talk to like, you know, Thurston Moore or, or Jay Mascis or any of those types of people, like he was the one that they all wanted to be. He was there like, oh, my God, that kid's just a kid and he's doing it.
1: He, and he like and we i would hear we would hear stories I think from from his wife she was saying how like they you know she she kind of came up in the scene too and she'd look over and t- t- he would walk in the room and it was like who is this woman like who's this tall <laughs> elegant woman like hair like parted straight down like on each side you know and that's kind of it's it's he is truly he's glam and he's punk like it in both like the most authentic ways. Yeah, like the true
0: embodiment of that glam thing. Like it's not a it's not a put on at all. Like just a, a gorgeous person inside and out.
1: Absolutely. Oh, I miss him so much. So I guess like what was it
0: um what was it like kind of like after that record came out with the format? Like were you guys playing with different types of bands after that?
1: After the second format album, I yeah. think we had just we had started to kind of that then we got to kind of um we were headlining at that point. And it was great because we'd, re- we'd self-released and I think, um, you know, had this something like a top, top 50, uh, you know, in, in the United States charts, like album, mm-hmm. um, that would, that was like a self-release. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty great. We had just done like our own tours and we just like brought out kind of like our friends bands and stuff like that. But, um, but at that point, you know, uh, as far as punk was concerned kind of blink 182 had happened. And then there was like all the screamo stuff. Um, and th- it's just, I don't know. I think I I feel like we're, And I think anybody who's a few years older than me might feel like they caught the last good punk music when they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we kind of like, we got out at the right time. I think it kind of, to me, if I look back at it, uh, as far as that genre, the genre of kind of punk re- that I got into, I felt like it kind of just like fell apart and turned into like screamo or like um, really just like super, super pop punk.
0: Well, yeah, it really exploded like in the wake of Blink-182, um, you know, like it became
1: like, yeah, like mainstream music at that point. Super mainstream. I, it's still still like it still like blows my mind because um, you, you no one would get away with it now even. I mean, I guess they are, aren't they are kind of, aren't they? Isn't like, is machine gun Kelly kind of like that? I don't, I don't know.
0: Machine gun Kelly
1: is, is like
0: new record is apparently like a full on straight up pop punk record.
1: Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Like what, (laughs) it's so funny. I'm talking about pop punk and you're like, you're probably like the way that you're probably rolling your eyes is, is probably the way that like, if someone wants to talk to me, like I would roll my eyes too. It's, It's just so, it's so funny how many different stages like that, that takes like how do you feel about the descendants? Oh, I love the descendants. Yeah, do you consider do you consider it like pop punk? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, for me,
0: like pop punk is like obviously, especially now, it's it's kind of taken up to be something very specific and not necessarily a good thing. But like when you think of pop punk as being, you know, uh, the undertones and the fastbacks and you know, the descendants, like right up to like, you know, green day and then through to blink One Eighty Two. It's like, it is a fascinating, a fascinating side of punk rock that goes right back to the beginning with the buzzcocks. Like, you know, like
1: there was pop punk is, is punk. But do you think that, um, if that, like the, I guess with the level of like recording, it's just, it's just gotten so like, it's just gotten so polished, right? Like, but then we go back How? to those fat
0: records with those, that Ryan Green production. Yeah, Ryan Green.
1: Exactly. That's who it was. He was like the one that kind of like did did that. Yeah. And like there was like, a, I don't know if it's like a metal type of aspect to those recordings too. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it's it's fascinating because the, the metal side of that like never bled into anything that I did artistically um, no, but- or, or like the guitar proficiency, you know, that a lot of that stuff had. When I think about punk, you know, I think it's, a, I always think of it as a little more simple than that. Um, or, you know, even with you guys, the, the guitar leads are like the best, but they're never like over the top, like, like, um, you know, they never get too like technical.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's the, the virtuosity of, of some of that stuff, like must've been, you know, like bleeding in from the glam stuff that was going on at the same time. Like, obviously it was like kind of the anti-glam quote unquote, but you know, really, (laughs) It was just a continuation of the Sunset Strip stuff in a lot of ways sonically.
1: Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I always, always thought that like even the pop punk stuff that became commercial after that, I felt like that started becoming the new, um, you know, glam like eighties kind of metal, hair metal type of shit.
0: Oh, definitely. Like if so, if you look at a documentary about the Warp Tour in the early two thousands and kind of like compare it to Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, mm-hmm. they're very similar. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's that's and that's I think that's when we kind of were like, okay, we got to we really got to get out of this because that that was never we were never into it. You know, there you just you start to find those people that are kind of into it for um, almost like the the chick aspect of it or like kind of like this like rock and roll lifestyle, this like cliche rock and roll lifestyle aspect of it. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, like the uh, like you mentioned earlier, but like the, the true kind of like jock mentality.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, And that was kind of like that was when we just had to go. You know, I think I think our musical taste had changed so much. And so I think we're pretty thankful for that. But we we, we was just like we were never going to partake in that style of of like punk rock. So was
0: that like what would that be kind of like how many years before fun starts? Is that realization hitting you?
1: I guess if fun started in like 2008, we probably came to that realization in like 90. Ninety eight, I would think.
0: Pardon me, ninety eight?
1: Yeah, nineteen ninety eight, I think, is when we were just kinda like ninety eight or ninety nine.
0: Oh, really? Okay, I, thought, I was talking even in the format. Like so by the time the format's kind of finishing up,
1: you're like completely disgusted with where that scene's gone by that point, I imagine that. No, well we went like beyond. No, we were <laughs> yeah. we were done with it, like I said, by like nine nine ninety eight, ninety nine. It's like I think Blink one eighty two kind of opened the door to and it was but I never really thought of them as that which I'm sure that you uh, could might think differently, but uh, like I always thought they, that it wasn't too much like that type of stuff. And once it became, once it turned into like a new but new level, new kind of butt rock, it was just like, no, we, we got to get the fuck out of here.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I I think from my perspective, like I love Cheshire cat when it came out, I thought there were a lot of skits. Like I thought it was a really amazing EP with like a lot of, a lot of, uh, joke songs afterwards and a lot of skits to kind of yeah. fill it out. But like I was a fan, but like, yeah, once it became, you know, not just Blink-182, but an entire genre of a of Blink-182s, uh, it, it became something different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was, it was too much. And so, um, so we, we, yeah. So we just felt like we had outgrown whatever that was going to be, which is, you know, now it's funny. just looking back now we're writing kind of pop punk songs that would fall into that, um, kind of bad, that epitaph type of, that's kind of what we're, what we're trying to do right now is just kind of do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, we just, I think we have a weird fondness for it. It feels good. It feels good to even play that, like fat, that fat beat, like to throw a fat records beat into a song. It just feels amazing.
0: Yeah. Oh no, definitely. I still listen to all that stuff. Like that's my bread and butter.
1: When I. Listening. It's what, but like the melodies just, they shine so, so well. Um, and so yeah, lately, lately it's funny. I, I've been listening to so much like Lagwagon. Um, I like, I really like pears now too. Um, mm-hmm. That was kind of, that was kind of something I got into as far as more of new punk rock is concerned.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's that whole, um, kind of early fat record scene or that like mid period kind of fat record scene. Like it's just, there's just something about it. Like that perfect mix of like pop metal and and pop punk where it's, it's incredibly digestible. Like it just, something about it just stays kind of timeless.
1: Yeah. It it worked. It worked. And, uh, um, uh, who was, oh, but we never got into Pennywise. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. We were never like, I don't think we were ever really like skate, skate punk. We were never skaters too. So,
0: it's amazing how different Pennywise is also taken up on the West coast. And I don't, I don't mean to lump Arizona into the West coast, but like, I wonder if it's the same thing where here, like Pennywise was like, you know, like kind of a underground subversive band. But I talked to some people from California and they're like, nah, that was like, that was like
1: like guns and roses in my high school. Oh, Matt, it was massive. It was totally, totally massive. It wasn't massive for us. Like, um, maybe, maybe it was like a year or two before Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, I think we like stuff that end up it's having a little more polished of a sound. But even it was like, we would do shows in Phoenix and it would be like the suicidal tendencies. And we would be like, I don't fucking know this band. I don't know this band. Next thing you know, like, like 1500 people, like packed, everybody's buying like $700 worth of fucking merchandise. <laughs> do you guys open for suicidal? We never open <laughs> for suicidal, but <laughs> we put on the show.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> that is amazing. You yeah. know, once again, like a band that yeah, like to this day, like you put them on, there'd be 1500 people showing up, just going completely like they're, they're like a cult as much as they are a band.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, that's what that which is the thing, like the merchant, the, their merchandise sales, you know, cause we'd also have to be in charge of like counting, counting bands out at the end of the night. We were like the, you know, we were the ticket, ta- like we were making sure that like punching, making sure everybody's like. <laughs> not sneaking people in and shit yeah. we're counting merch out which is so funny because then when we went on tour it's like you're just like fucking sneaking in boxes of fucking merchandise <laughs> all the time <laughs> then you're like oh that's how they were doing it the whole time oh uh, that shit was so much fun that was definitely like, some of the best stuff
0: i wonder if it's legal that you guys are underage doing this stuff at a place that i'm assuming serves alcohol
1: uh i i don't remember if they served alcohol because we were kind of edge at that point okay yeah um, uh, but I do know that D- dateline came and brought someone cause they, we had rate rave nights and dateline came and the whole, the whole, it was a huge sting all over the news in Phoenix got busted for like ecstasy sales <laughs> and the Nile shut down. And then, and then, so they tried to, they tried to get our friend. You know, he was, like, if there was, like, a big fucking board on the wall with, like, this guy whose head was at the top, like, was right below him. And they're, like, and he's making fucking fake IDs driving out to Vegas to do Fat Mike's, like, fucking bowling tournament. That's when he got busted. Was on his way back from Fat Mike's fucking bowling tournament.
0: From punk rock bowling? Yes.
1: <laughs> oh, man. But but they, but they think it was a sting operation. They're, like, he fucking, he, they were, he was he was being targeted for making the fake IDs in order to get to who was at the top, who was dealing the ecstasy. Am I a fucking snitch?
0: No, uh, this is all busted. I can beep all the names.
1: (laughs) Okay, cool.
0: I'll beep all the names. I'll just drop, 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 drop. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be funny. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) Um, To protect the the not so innocent, we will repeat people, those names.
1: But that was fucking. Then, then capitalism fucking took over the. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's amazing! See, that's the thing. Like you talk about Steve McDonald having all these lives. Like you know, prior to you know, you're obviously your solo kind of songwriting career now. Prior to that, your solo career. Prior to that, fun. Prior to that format, but prior to that, you had the most exciting part of your life.
1: Oh yeah, no, it was like those are the only days I missed. That's the that's the funny thing. I like I now I have I I have. I, I, one of the reasons why I stopped writing music is because I always just wrote songs about being broken hearted and, um, and I found someone that I love more than anything and I have two children that I love more than anything and I just don't, I can't put myself in that headspace anymore so I have a hard time going out and like being something that I'm not. Um, that's That was, to, this is the best time of my life. It, the, absolutely the second best time of my life was that time. Like without mm-hmm. a doubt. It wasn't like when they were like, it wasn't fucking playing the Grammys. Like that was, that was the worst. That was literally the worst time. Like, I know that sounds cliche, but it's, it's absolutely true. If you're just looking at just having a sheer good time, it it was absolutely ba- like predicated around driving, eating like 700, like tacos from, from Jack in the box and like going to see like me first in the gimme give and shit. So
0: why was it, you know, because obviously most people playing in bands, you know, I've never achieved anything close to that, but like, what was it about? Going to that level that that was so gross. Did you find?
1: Um, it's like I, I'll just uh, I don't know. It just became too. It's, it just became too much. It 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 was never what I got into it for. Obviously, I'm very thankful for a lot of those things. Um, but you know, after the first format album had kind of flopped, I we had always just been like, well this this mainstream thing is never going to happen. So it happened for me when I was like 30, like either 31 or 32 is when it happened. Um, you know, we won best new artist at the Grammys and it was like, well, I f- fucking put out like a major label album when I was like 20. Like I was selling out, you know, t- thousand, 2000, 2000 C venues when I was like 22, 23 years old. Like there's nothing new about me. It, it just, it all just felt so like kitschy. It's like, yeah, you're considered the best new artist to these, this group of people. Like, we're going to completely, you know, in the eyes of the grammys, um all that type of shit like that music that i that i grew up being so fond of that that didn't exist. So like why why should i fucking care about it?
0: You know, that's like the weirdest thing i think about, you know, and obviously once again i never <laughs> never achieved those those heights, but i think in the same way like my goals were so much more uh like modest than what yes. my band achieved. So like once I achieved those things. It, it, it devalued it a little bit, I think, beyond that for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I that's um, for me, the exact same thing. I, it just. Uh, it was it was really beat. It was really beat over up up there. And it, it was just like so it was just interesting. I didn't know what a Grammy was until um, I had written We Are Young and and I was in the studio with with the producer and co-writer and and he's playing it super loud and he's like this is gonna win a grammy and i thought it was like a fucking i thought that was a golden globe like i was like i was like oh that's when like they they like tv shows and music and movies all get honored in one night (laughs) you know like i didn't i really didn't know what it was i knew i knew what a like a like a the mercury prize was i knew what like the polaris or whatever like i knew what that type of stuff was yeah yeah. i didn't know what a didn't know what a grammy was because i just never listened to that i never listened to whatever like mainstream music was on at the time.
0: So did, was that feeling when you're like, when you wrote that and you guys listen to the studio, did you feel that that was going to be a hit? Cause like, you know, I've had other people on that have written hits and there, it's almost like a different kind of feeling when they wrote it, even like talking to Lars, about when they, when salvation was done, like it was almost like he didn't see it, but Brett Gerwitz was like, this is a hit. We're going to make this song. We're going to actually loop it so we can actually make it a full song.
1: Mm, that's cool. Um, Brecker it actually came up with that?
0: Yeah, like originally, like, I guess the what Lars told the story, like they had finished the session and then Tim came in and was like, here's a song and it was like a verse and a chorus. And so they actually just loop it on the recording.
1: That's so awesome. <laughs> so, um, awesome. so awesome. But did you, did you Life, that oh, sorry. Life, Life Won't Wait is absolutely one of my favorites too.
0: Yeah, like I think that they're a band that if you look at that run of records where they were putting those records out every year and every one of those records has like 20 songs, it's like what uh, what a team of songwriters to be churning out that many kind of classic pop uh,
1: songs, yeah, and they're so fucking good. And but also the other thing is like Rancid has always kind of remained, um, even the, with the like. I, well, I, I can't. I guess I can't really speak too much for the the Tim stuff. But if I'm thinking about Lars and and the, just like Rancid, it's like some people just want to like still remain in, Oakland, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that was kind of one thing for me too. Is like uh, it just. I didn't, it was not like I was like comfortable suddenly like being, even if I was writing songs for like other artists and shit, I didn't want to go hang out with them afterwards. Like, I just felt like it was a job yeah. to have to like write for people. And, um, and it's, this business is very all about like who you can remain friends with. And um, that's just not kind of, that's just not my really, my thing. I think most probably, anybody would say that. So I, I um, but do you certainly like can't find me any anywhere that other people are.
0: So I guess going back to when you wrote, well, we are young, did you feel it like in the studio or was it just people telling you that it's going to be something?
1: Um, people telling me, but it was enough people that it, it was like, like, okay, well, if all these people are saying it, then it must be like, it's, this is the first time I'm going to say it. Um, but so I, I had written the song. I don't really think anyone had heard it, before. And I had really wanted this producer, this guy, Jeff Basker, and he had produced, um, I think he had done this Alicia Keys album song and album. I loved, and he'd also done, um, uh, 808 and heartbreak, the Kanye album and, um, dark twist fantasy, the Kanye album. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think that this guy's going to be the missing piece. And for whatever fucking reason, I was able to get a a meeting with him and, and, um, we'd met and we'd kind of hit it off. And he was like, he had to go somewhere and he was like, I want to play you this Beyonce song I worked on. I was like, that's great. And then I was like, "Well, this is a song that I've got," and I just randomly sang him the chorus of "We Are Young," and he was like, "I want to go in the studio tomorrow and record that." And I had just written it driving into this into Manhattan. I was living in New Jersey um, at the time, and I had just written, like, kind of just finished it driving into Manhattan, being like, "I got to, I got to give this guy something." Um, and uh, and so we went in the studio the next day and recorded it, um, just him and I. And Alicia Keys was in the other room of the studio and she like ran in to hear the fucking song. So I'm like sitting there like, and I'm like, and Swiss beats is like, I want that song for my like album. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with like these people that I would, that I'd never fucking in a million years. And I had already been in music for, you know, I'd been a professional musician at, for like 12 years at that point. And I was like, where the fuck am I? And next thing I know, and this is something I think i have never really said is Jeff said, I want you to come in the studio with me tomorrow. I'm with Kanye. He's making Watch the Throne with Jay-Z. And he brought me into the studio the next day with, with Kanye West, like in a, in a session with Kanye West all night. Um, we Are Young was on Watch the Throne. I had to, he was like, I want to change these lyrics. I forgot what fucking lyrics I had to change for Kanye. <laughs> um. And it was on Watch the Throne until we had a dispute about publishing. Wow, that and, is and so, so wild. And, and We Are Young hadn't hit yet, and so, so it, I so I didn't have a dollar to my name, and so I was like, give the fucking song to Jay Z and fucking Kanye. I don't care if they just want to give me like five percent. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, give the song to fucking Jay Z and Kanye, and uh, and everybody was like, no, this song's gonna be a fucking hit like don't let them have the song and so they didn't take the, the so they 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 didn't get their way and so they didn't put the song out and they would have had like first rights to the song and we put it out and that was that was that
0: that's incredible um obviously you know you've worked with like so many amazing people and i'm I, i'm not going to punish you for all the details but <laughs> did you meet Brian Wilson? I did. What was that like? Um just you know going back to perfect pop and stuff.
1: That was um that was another one of the like wow like these are like the only two good stories i have um <laughs> I mean, uh, I to... no brian brian wilson he, he i guess he'd fallen fallen in love with hearing the songs and really loved my voice and had written this song and so i his people reached out to my people and were like brian wilson's doing a new album and he would like you to sing a song and um and i'm not gonna say no <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <of> <laughs> straight up like i'm not gonna fucking say no so i went down to the studio got in there it was just me um brian wilson's like co-writer and brian and brian was very just like the way that you would expect brian to be he was like eating an in and out burger <laughs> um and uh and his his co-writer who was kind of brian's age um much more lively was like brian this is nate you're so crazy about his voice blah blah, blah. and brian wilson was just like could not have given like two fucks and i kind of knew what to ex- expect you know i i had read I had gone through my Beach Boys phase where I'd read like three fucking books on the Beach Boys, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so I was just kind of thinking, he's gonna be this way. Uh, don't take it personal at all. You should just be flattered to even be in here. And so I went in the vocal booth and I started singing the song and I um, I guess I wasn't singing it that good because next thing you know, I'm here and like Brian, Brian says you're flat and i'm like what the fuck like brian wilson's going to try and come at me like that <laughs> and um and i take a lot of pride in 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 my voice um like that was how i i i people ask me how how did you become like how did you learn to project i i think one thing that i do really well is i project really really loud mm-hmm. and um that was from just playing so many basement shows and my band just wanted to play as like my punk band just wanted to play as loud as possible And I didn't have a PA. And so I just had to like learn to like sing over the band, just like acoustic. Um, And so I kind of used, I was just like, all right. Like Brian says I'm flat. Like I'm gonna fucking push. Um, And so next thing you know, Brian Wilson is like, I'm looking through like the control booth. Like it's like Boogie Nights or something. And Brian Wilson is fucking up. He's up out of his seat and he's at the fucking control booth. And he is like loving it. (laughs) And He's loving it. And then next thing I know, and I can't write harmonies for shit. Like I'm fucking terrible at harmonies. Um and Brian Wilson, next thing you know, he's like, okay, now sing this harmony. Now sing this harmony. Now sing this harmony. And then and then I hear him say, um, Nate, you sound amazing. You sound like my brother Dennis. And it was just like, what the fuck? Like that, that's awesome. Like way cooler than anything that it could ever possibly happen and he had me singing all these parts and really like it was really just like me trying to flex in front of Brian Wilson so that he didn't he didn't like trash me but what was the most amazing thing was just watching this guy write harmonies in real time and just see him go from like um kind of what you read about Brian Wilson to like what you read about Brian Wilson mm-hmm. um it being like this this maestro who just who just knows everything it was such an amazing special moment and for whatever reason, he like he became a big fan and like had asked me to come and sing a, uh, a concert with him, like a DVD taping and stuff like that. And it was just and like um, from that time on, he never criticized me, and I could like he only like kind of like would look at me like with like a fondness, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is as cool as it fucking gets.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? Like that's like I guess more than a Grammy. That's like true, the truest form of validation you can get as an artist
1: absolutely times a trillion like i would i would trade every any any sort of grammy for that for that moment it, and and at the time too so much stuff had like happened that i i treated it kind of nonchalantly mm-hmm. um but but when i have to like tell that story again it's just like fuck i'm going to like stay up all night thinking about this
0: yeah what's well you know once again just you know cuz i can only relate it to my personal experience but on a much different sort of scale but just like that it all happens so quick and it's only like you know, during this time where everything's slowed down, that you can kind of go back and and look at these things that are just like larger than life.
1: Yeah. Oh, so it's 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 so cool. But you know, I know you're such a fan of of, of music, and uh, um, and that that's the shit that just gets me the most is when I can um, you know, I get I only got into it because I was a fan of because I was a fan of music, so I only like to I love to remember those moments where I'm just like, as a fucking fan of music, this is absolutely fucking bonkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I've kept you forever, and I know you don't like doing interviews, but Nate, just so you know, if you ever want to do a part two, there's always a door open here.
1: Ah, Damien, um, we're, we're like the the we, we, like anytime.
0: But before I let you go, though, I have to bring up one question. Um, do you remember eating at Gibby's Steakhouse in Montreal? Yes. Did Steve McDonald text you? And say my friend is at the restaurant right now and wondering if you're eating at Gibby's Steakhouse in Montreal.
1: Oh my god! I fucking wish I saved my text just for that.
0: It was me. I texted uh, Steve and I'm like, I think I'm looking at your friend Nate from Fun eating at steak right now (laughs) at Gibby's. And he was. Oh my gosh!
1: I think my wife was with me and and uh, and then someone from my label and I think my manager. That was such a god. That place is so fucking
0: good. So good. So good. I have not been in a long time, but that was like a, a family favorite of my wife's family when I would be in Montreal. So we've got, oh, I, I don't eat meat anymore, so I can't really enjoy it. But uh, at the time I loved
1: it. I wish that you would have come up to me and then I could have, I could have been like this, this fucking guy. This
0: fucking <laughs> well, well, the thing was, Steve didn't return my text until after we had left the restaurant. So I didn't realize that it actually was you and nothing would have been worse than if I had approached you, especially not knowing that we had the beef and then it not have been you. And then, you know.
1: <laughs> well, if it was me, I would have just like backed down in two seconds and have been like, I would, I mean, you know, I was, I was, fuck, I was still, I was a huge fucked up fan. So that, that like that wouldn't have changed anything for me. Um, but Steve, yes, yeah, Steve was, did Steve ever talk shit about me?
0: Never. No, never. He said that you're one of the greatest people he knew and has said nothing but kind things about you, which is like, Because I remember talking to Steve and being like, oh, yeah, like we're talking about your band. I'm like, I actually really like their songs. And then he was like, dude, they're really cool. And that was like a big relief for me because I feel uncomfortable when I don't like when it's something outside of my wheelhouse musically. I'm like, is this thing going to be cool or is this going to be something I regret liking? But after this conversation, Nate, I have absolutely no regrets.
1: Oh, good. Well, oh, I listen. If anyone's, like, if it, it, you know, if there are punkers that are listening to um to, to this, I just like I just want them to know I'm uh I don't claim to be I don't claim to be anything I'm not, and uh and I wish that I was more punk than I am.
0: Well, no, but here's the thing. That's what I like. The motto on this show is "Everybody's somebody's poser," and it's because like you have someone like Steve McDonald, who is you know. seeing the germs at 11 you know like none of us are going to be that cool ever so we're all posers when it comes to comes to this shit so you know everyone's a poser on this podcast myself included obviously
1: uh no i don't think so i mean you're fucking no you're like a you're like a fucking narwhal of punk rock
0: (laughs) oh man well i I feel mystical now (laughs) that's right Thank you, Nate, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Nate will be back for a part two at some point in the future. Uh, that was awesome. Really great to talk to Nate. And what a what a journey. What a journey. And those I love those stories. Those are going to be two of my favorites. A Brian Wilson story and a Kanye West story. Those don't come up very often here on Turned Out of Punk. Not very often at all. Coming up, though, later on this week on the show... Nicole Panter. Anyone that's seen Decline of Western Civilization will remember Nicole. She is, of course, the Germs' manager. Uh, Also, one of the original driving forces behind Pee-wee's Playhouse, or or the Pee-wee Herman show, and also an incredible teacher. This is a wild episode. This is one of those episodes that... Yeah, man, you got to check this one out. There's a lot of stuff going on here. There's some great stories, uh, and some really yeah, really interesting conversation. Really interesting conversation. I'm I'm excited for you to hear this one. That will be coming out in a few days. Remember, as always, black lives matter, the lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people. This is a time when you want to get involved, you want to lend your voice to organizations, to causes, you want to just be on the right side of things, because really these aren't political issues, these are just human rights issues, and we're talking about just people trying to live their lives and be who they are, so uh, also do something creative for yourself, go there, create something, make something, do something, say something, you know, you don't have to show anyone else, you know, just draw a picture for yourself, but... Doing something creative helps. It can help with your mental well-being. And it's not just me saying it. There's studies. People do studies into this stuff. And they and they, they back it up with their, their figures and their facts. Uh, speaking, though, on the other side of things, just from anecdotal evidence, try meditating. I've been trying to meditate, and it really does kind of slow things down a little bit and allow me to kind of, I don't know, uh, control, control the pace of my life. So maybe it'll work for you too. Uh, Speaking of working for you, maybe when your life isn't working for you anymore, you can sign your organ donor card. That's a really awkward way of me saying sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them and they can help someone else. I'm talking from not personal experience, but people I know that have been helped by organ donation. So try it, you know, that's it. Wear a mask, stay safe. Uh, and we'll get through this thing and I'll see you later on, on this podcast. Nicole Panter. It's a doozy. Thanks for listening. Love ya. Listen to Oil and Flowers with Buddha Blaze and myself talking about cannabis. Bye.